Welcome back to New View EDU, a podcast from the National Association of Independent Schools on what's next for school leaders. I'm Lisa K. Solomon, author, futurist, and designer in residence at the Stanford D School. And I'm Tim Fish, the Chief Innovation Officer at NAIS. Today on New View EDU, I'm excited to welcome back Donna Orm, President of NAIS. And also, today, we'll be having a conversation with John Gula, Executive Director of the Edward E. Ford Foundation. John became the Executive Director of the Edward E. Ford Foundation in 2013, and E.E. Ford, in its over 60 years of making grants, has distributed over $125 million to over 900 different independent schools. In his capacity at the foundation, John has visited over 450 schools around the country. Prior to joining the foundation, John was the head of school at the Blake School in Minneapolis. He's also held administrative and teaching positions at Riverdale Country School, Isidore Newman, and St. Anne's in Brooklyn. A graduate of Teachers College, Columbia University, and Amherst College, John grew up the son of two public school teachers in Red Sox Nation, just outside of Boston. He helped found Fund for Teachers and has served on its board since its inception, having chaired it for many years. He has also served on a number of other boards, including High Mountain Institute, Isaacs, MAIS, Milkweed Editions, and the Minnesota chapter of the ACLU. He and his wife, Andrea, have two grown sons and live in Brooklyn. John and Donna, welcome back and welcome to New View EDU. We are so excited for this conversation. So let's jump right in. The past couple of years have forced our schools to reimagine, to double down on the essentials, and to work tirelessly to hold our communities together. It has been a monumental effort for our schools. As we look out to the future, I'm curious for the two of you, what inspires you about our schools and what they've been up to for the last few years? And where do you think we need to focus our attention as an industry? Well, I couldn't be more proud of our schools, first of all, because leading through uncertainty is uh, difficult for anybody. But I think for school leaders, often schools were on the front lines of doing this work. They were having to make decisions and in many cases really have to hold two very different types of roles at schools, often opposite roles. You know, sometimes they had to lead with humility. Other times they had to be the hero making quick decisions. They had to be both strategic and tactical. So, you know, it's just really hard to continue changing those roles. I also think, you know, what's been very difficult is they had to live in the moment because there were so many issues to deal with and Clearly, they needed to do that. But at the same time, they had to plan for the future because this is a time where there is lots of opportunity to think about uh, what's happening. You know, and, and I think right to jump into what's happening right now, we're, we're firmly in the fourth industrial revolution. And that's really creating a lot of change and acceleration of change in our society. So, you know, I think as school leaders think about education, it's no longer just educating kids for 
what are jobs or opportunities in the present, but it's educating them for things that we haven't even considered yet. So I think what's really challenging for leaders today is, is you're not necessarily educating kids for some one thing. You're educating them for any possibility. So I think uh, that is a tall challenge, which leaders are thinking through today as they uh, take hold of risk, really engage in experimentation, and uh, try to come up with strategies that will ensure that all children are successful in this challenging future. So I'll stop there for a moment because I'd love to hear John's perspective as well. Well, first, thanks, Donna and Tim, for the invitation. Uh, Tim, for your gracious introduction. And I agree, Donna, with very much of what you said. The, the, Tim, your question about what inspires me is the same thing that, that has for over 40 years of, of work in independent schools, that the, those students who are enrolled in, in our schools and, and those teachers who are committed to the work of independent schools continue to be the inspiration. I think it's fair to say the last two years have been more challenging than any other two-year period, certainly in, in my experience, and I, I think we'd have to go back quite a ways to find a period that had delivered the magnitude of challenge that the, the pandemic has. Uh, there are enormous number of challenges, but there are, as Donna suggests, also a number of reasons for sort of optimism. Uh, one of the things that, that has struck me is the uh, agility and flexibility that uh, independent school communities have shown. In the entire uh, pre-K to 16 world of education, I don't think there is a subset that uh, pivoted as quickly and as effectively to the necessity of remote learning as did independent schools. Uh, and one of the silver linings of, of this incredibly challenging uh, pandemic period has, has been the required uh, technological uh, education of some who might have been a little bit more reticent to use the, the full range of tools that are, are now at our disposal. I think the, the pandemic also taught us that things that we may have thought were impossible really weren't. Who would have imagined that, that within a period of, of a couple weeks in, in March of, of 2020, that all that we do could be delivered virtually without any more preparation than those couple of weeks. And yet we did it. It wasn't perfect, but we did it in an effort to try to, to serve the kids who are enrolled in, in the schools. As I look forward, coming out of this pandemic, I think there are enormous number of challenges and I'm concerned about them. I'm concerned about what I think may be an almost catastrophic teacher shortage. I think this is incredibly difficult, and I'm sure that we, we probably will touch on this, but to get into to some of the, the pressures that classroom teachers are feeling as a factionalized country fights out some of its battles in the classroom with the, the teachers as the, the, those who are trying to navigate that. Uh, I, I think that is, is a, a huge challenge. I think student mental health is a challenge. Some of that preceded the, the pandemic. I think there are a lot of things that have been going on in independent schools that didn't always uh, make for the healthiest environment for some ambitious young people. Uh, but I think the pandemic, we're only beginning to understand what it means to have been a, an adolescent, for example, never mind a younger child uh, wrestling with this epical period of time. Yeah, you know, just to build on that, I mean, I think you're right on about this notion of student health and well-being. It's something we've talked about, Donna and I have talked about in other podcasts, about this idea of what do you put in the center of school now, 
right? And this idea of well-being of the community is a huge part of it. I mean, Donna, in your On My Mind column in the winter 2020 issue of Independent School Magazine, you write about civic engagement and the imperative for our schools to do what we do uniquely well, to build community. I love that's how you end that article. I'm curious for both of you, if we sort of go on this idea of civic engagement and the polarity and tension that's in our schools today, how do we help our schools lean into the issues of civil discourse and the importance of a courageous commitment to the essence of good faith debate in the academy? You know, what is what do you think that can look like and how can we continue to do that really important work today? You know, it's such a great question, Tim. You know, I'm going to start with a story that's pre-pandemic. The Atlantic did an interesting study, I think it was in 2018 or 19, to understand what was driving this polarization and whether it was nationwide. And they found that, you know, in fact, a lot of it is because we are now engaged in what researchers call civic deserts where there just aren't opportunities for people to meet and discuss issues and address problems together. And the pandemic has really caused a lot of us to be much more isolated and to look inward. And what I loved about the research that the Atlantic did is they actually looked at all of the counties in the United States and wanted to identify were some more tolerant than others and why. And they, they wrote an article about a county in upstate New York, and they, they visited there and they talked with a pastor. He talked about a group of men that he brought together to actually meet and talk once a week. And they started with breakfast and they might read together. And I just want to read a quote because I think it really gets at the heart of when we think about community, what we have to to think about. And he said this, once you're fed and you're with friends, you're a better person. The second secret is to talk for a long time. We talk about it long enough until we realize how much we don't know. I think that's really crucial to think about. Once you realize how much you don't know, the honest conversation comes out. I think there's a lot that we can take there about how we can build community at schools. We are uniquely positioned to be places where people of difference come together and can begin to talk about these differences. And But I think we have to start talking. That doesn't mean that we agree with one another, but we have to talk long enough. And I think, you know, once we do start to talk, we realize there is a lot that we don't know about each other. I also think compounding this, and there's been a lot of research on this, is that probably for the last 40 to 50 years, trust in core institutions has been declining. And that's not just education, but it's all the core institutions that make up the fabric of our society. So, you know, we need to rebuild that trust. We need to rebuild that trust in each other. So I think there are a few things as schools that we need to talk about. First is I think we need to look at both the student and adult communities together because I think anxiety within one is transferred to the other. So we have to look systemically at how we build well-being in schools. You know, 
Second, we need to start talking to each other and we need to set some ground rules around that so that we have discussions where people are realizing what they don't know and are seeking to find more. I also think, you know, we can think outside of our own walls, too, as we need to build community within schools. But I think we can also be centers of uh, well-being in our larger communities. So, you know, I I think that's something to think about. And it's a, a very, very tall order. But I think if we start collaborating in that enterprise with other schools in the community, both public and private, we can start bringing back that discourse, as the pastor said, bringing people together to interact and to really start to understand those differences. I also think, you know, and I want to channel John Powell, at uh, who heads Berkeley Center for Othering and Belonging right now. I think we need to embrace his philosophy of targeted universalism, and that is that schools need to adopt universal goals, those things that we hope to achieve for students and adults in the community alike. And then we need to understand where people are situated. And I love this about John's work is he talks about difference being very situational, that we all, depending upon the goal that we're trying to reach, are situated quite differently. And so how do we create then targeted strategies to bring people who have different needs to those universal goals. So I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of promise in schools as we get back together live and start embracing communities of difference. That's a lot for me to uh, follow. (laughs) Thank you, Donna. Several things. Let me build on on a number of things, Donna, that, 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 that you mentioned. It has long interested me that some of the battles fought out in society uh, come to a head in schools. And, and they do, I think, for some reasons that you allude to. Schools, uh, meaning really elementary, secondary college universities, are often the places where we come into the most intimate connection with those who are unlike us. And it's a result of that otherness, that, that uh, lack of, of familiarity uh, that causes the disagreements that, that I regret in today's world seem to require on, on the behalf of all sides, success defined only as winning the argument and not in coming to a deeper understanding of how others might think. One of the, the, the goals, it seems to me, of our schools is to develop that familiarity with otherness. My advisor, Tim, in the intro mentioned that I'd gone to Teachers College and I had the great good fortune to have had the legendary Maxine Green as my advisor. And she used, Maxine Green used to say that that to, to, to be well-educated, in, in her words, was to see things as if they could be otherwise. And one of the failures, it seems to me right now, is too much yelling and screaming and efforts at winning the argument than an appreciation of what others might have to say. And and therein lies some of the challenge in achieving that civil discourse. 
as Donna was was mentioning, and there's, there's ample evidence of, of this, whether it's you know Robert Putnam's work or Bowling Alone, et cetera, but where some of what had been available to American society as, as places of gathering have, have shrunk, uh, whether that's places of, of worship or other uh, community engagements. And schools are the one place where this still happens. So that is the place where we see everything from the, you know, the, the Scopes trial and then and, and arguments about evolution to, to the, the current craziness uh, because it's been so politicized a topic of teaching about an honest teaching of our country's history. So the, this establishment of, of community, I think, is a central goal for all schools at, at all levels. And one of the things that I've always enjoyed about the independent school world and really a privilege, a luxury that independent schools have is they can be mission driven, uh, that independent schools really can create their mission, which does not have to, to be a mission that will resonate with every citizen, with every prospective family. Uh, and therein lies, I think, one of the great strengths. And it's a contrast. I, I'm, as, as a person who's, who's chosen to spend his career at independent schools, I'm not in any way anti-public school. I want nothing but success for all children. But I enjoy the, the relative liberty that I think independent schools have not to try to, to be all things to all people. And that's part of the reason that I think this component of, of the educational ecosystem is as important and as necessary as it is. John, if I could just riff on that for a moment, I, I couldn't agree with you more, but I would add one more component to it. You know, I think it's great that we're mission driven and I think absolutely necessary to be very clear on what that is. But, you know, as we look to the next decade, I would suggest that in addition to being mission driven, we need to be purpose driven and see how those link together. Because, you know, purpose takes us to that all important question of why are we doing this? And I think mission helps us then carry out that purpose. But I think when we start thinking about purpose, it takes us to looking at the all important work of building culture and community. And, you know, really how do we you know, reach that very aspirational goal of purpose. In fact, you know, in, in many ways, purpose is something that we may always be reaching for <laughs> because uh, we set for ourselves these very lofty goals, but they also, I think, create that dream that really drives us as human beings. So I as I said, I couldn't agree more, and I hope this next decade finds us really talking about uh, purpose, because certainly there's so many problems to address in our society, and I think independent schools are uniquely positioned to actually get into that and think very individually how they can alter the destiny of our society in positive ways. I welcome the, the inclusion of, of purpose with enthusiasm to, to our discussion. I think it, it absolutely fundamental. One of the, the things that, that drives me crazy uh, when I read commentary, often criticism about modern day American education, is that far too often the pieces rely on an economic analysis of how well prepared 
the, the students who, who graduate will be for uh, the workplace. And as the father, as Tim, you mentioned, my wife and I have two sons, and I'm glad they're not living in our basement and that they're both gainfully employed. So I am not dismissive of, of the need for that, but of, of the literally thousands and thousands of, of teachers I've had conversations with on behalf of the, the foundation, I don't know anyone who went into the profession so that they could make a more effective widget for the global capitalist system. Uh, that's just not what I think motivates people at their core. The purpose, the, the, the idea of other than, than it seems to me, other than one's immediate family, a school, especially a pre-K through 12th grade school, has the opportunity for being a larger influence over who that young person becomes than any other force out there. I certainly hope more powerful than popular culture. Uh, the, the opportunity for forging that purpose, for, for giving that young person a sense of, of control that they can have over their destiny to, to be themselves, uh, not to, to be, and I say this with, with, with all due humility, if, if you know, all parents have a certain degree of narcissism and wanting the, their children to choose a path that, that says to them by replicating them that we made the right choices and that, that humility necessary and the part of, of, of parents to, to come to realize, as kids will often say, we're not the boss of them. Uh, that we have to to allow uh, that degree of autonomy to develop. That's the purpose, it seems to me, in creating passions and, and developing interests. Uh, uh, what kind of person am I going to, to be? There, I think, the, the, the work that we do, and, and one of my hopes in the future for all schools, but particularly independent schools, is that we'll pay even more attention trying to, to figure out what is the, the long-term benefit of an education. And I think it's, you know, woe to us if, if that is measured in the real short term in terms of just selective college admission. I know how, how driven schools are for that, but if that's the, the only measure, if it's not a longer degree of satisfaction with life, if it's not the degree of civic engagement, which can be shown, independent schools do a wonderful job uh, of graduating students who remain civically engaged. Therein lies the real value, it seems to me, uh, and the purpose is to, to produce in, in this even jeopardized Jeffersonian democracy and engaged citizenry. Oh, John, you are so bright. And, you know, if I could have a, a moment of humility myself, I also am a parent of a son. And I remember when he was in an independent school, you know, one afternoon I was having a conversation with a teacher at the school. And I join you in applauding all of our teachers. And because I think we as adults have so much to learn from them as, as well. And this was a moment of learning for me. I was upset with my son because he was not doing well in math. And, you know, as a parent at that time, I think I was a little too focused on grades and the college experience. And, you know, I was having this casual conversation with one of his math teachers. And, you know, I expected the conversation to go in a way of what I could do to really support him or to motivate him or to just get out of the way. And he turned to me and said, you know, your son has a real passion and his passion was around music. And he said he's very lucky to have discovered that passion so early in life. And basically you ought to get out of his way as he <laughs> pursues that passion. Correct. So Correct. I don't know that he would always say that I did, but um, I that teacher certainly gave me a lot to think about 
about how I could be a better parent in that moment. You know, Donna, I think I'm giving this uh, attribution correctly to Mike Riera, who had a head of school who I heard speak once. And he said that at some point along the way, as a parent, you're going to get fired. And <laughs> and your job is you could either just walk away from the job and say, all right, good luck, you know, or you could try really hard to get hired back as a consultant. And for me, I will say that I am, I've been fired and I am on my way, hopefully to getting hired back as a consultant with my kids. And and certainly that is a, it's hard work to, to make that certainly transition. You know, I love this notion of mission and purpose and thinking about that. And what I've been spending a lot of time on and what we've been spending a lot of time on in Strategy Lab is the, how do you get there? What does that look like for a school to both declare and ensure that there's a high degree of clarity around what that mission is and what therefore it isn't and what that purpose is and what it isn't. And, you know, what we've been spending a lot of time on is thinking about how we help schools with strategy, how we help them sort of with innovation design and action. But at the heart of it, right, is Michael Porter's idea from Harvard Business School. Michael Porter's idea is around this idea that fundamentally strategy is competing to be unique, that it's this idea of understanding where you're really trying to go, what is your niche, what is your way of going. He talks about this idea of a positive-sum economy as opposed to a zero-sum economy. And in a positive-sum economy, you essentially have lots of different options, lots of thriving choices for people to make that are succeeding because they do what they do really well. As opposed to zero sum where for me to win, it must, it means that you must lose. And I've been fascinated by this idea of how could our schools become, how could we create a positive sum economy in education where there are all kinds of ideas thriving, where schools know what they do really, really well. And for me, that's kind of been at the center of strategy. And I'm curious for the two of you, what your sense is of where we are in terms of thinking about strategy, where we should be moving, particularly in this moment with thinking about strategy and how schools and boards and teams and teachers and students can really be designing for the future they want to see to be unique and to be themselves. I think my answer to to how the schools may do that includes, among other things, a hope, a keen, uh, enthusiastic hope that one of the things that we'll see in the the years to come is a a broadening of definitions of success. I I think that, that, that we've had for too long this industrial model of education with children progressing through schools in age cohorts in quanta of of classes, taught the same material from often the same text by a single teacher without the the differentiation that can come as schools reconceive the way in which they they will go about this work. And part of what's necessary, if if my dream for education were to, to come to fruition, would to be, you know, 10,000 different flowers blooming of different types of schools that will ultimately make it a lot more difficult for parents 
defined in their terms the right school for their child because it will require them to really know who their children decide what is the right school for their child. It's an easier task if schools tend to converge towards similarity than this, this craziness that we have, not just in education, but in American society, for listicles and, 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 and uh, rankings and, and what is the, the, the best. And, and, and I think maybe both have heard me say this, but I remember keenly that when NAS resisted under Peter Relic's uh, leadership, the U.S. News and World Report effort to try to do to independent schools what, what they successfully did with college universities. And Peter's pushback was, was to, to the reporter who uh, came to, to see him and said, why are you resisting this? Why don't your consumers deserve to have the, the data? And Peter said to him, do you have children? And he said, yes, three. And then, then, then Peter said, who's the best? Which one of your children is the best? Is it, is it the one who will have the greatest amount of public success in the world? Or is it the one who makes you laugh when you're down? Is it the one that you have faith will actually come and care for you in your old age? And what is the best? And, and that's part of what I want to see in the, the future is, is a broadening. I, I, I think we're seeing some of these changes as we move away from, you know, two national measures uh, assessing student promise in the SAT and ACT, uh, that this is going to be a rich examination within the, the world of education as many number of highly selective college universities have had to make holistic determinations about who they'll admit without this default measure to go to. So I guess my, I, the way I would begin to think about your really good question, Tim, is to, to see a variation on schools, that they will have to be courageous in putting a stake in the ground of trying to say, who are they? And then they're going to have to create an identity around something that, that, that won't fade in a, in a few years. So that, that, that's what takes the real courage on the part of institution to to forge its identity around something that 10 years from now, 30 years from now, will be as attractive to a set of constituents. Um, the last thing that I guess that I, I would mention uh, is, is part of my own education about certain elements of, of, of a school that I just hadn't appreciated before I had the, the great good fortune to have visited so many. So the, the four schools that you named at the beginning that had employed me, I thought were radically different. And I, I thought that each of those schools uh, were, were, were so easily set apart from each other that now, however, I see they were all part of a tiny spectrum in, in NAS schools, that they were coeducational, pre-K through 12th grade, selective, financially stable, coeducational, non-sectarian schools, et cetera. And there are so many types of, of schools that I've come to, to realize something I poo-pooed before, but the importance of culture in a school. And by that, I would mean how you have a strong culture in a school if, if most all of the members of the different constituencies are in harmony about what that school is all about and what its values are, what its mores are. Example, I mean, one of the things that I just love to see when I go to visit a school is if I'm hanging out in the hallway, and this is why the pandemic was difficult for me because I love the school visits among the most important parts and enjoyable parts of my job, but doing virtual visits who taught me something, but not nearly as much as being on campus. So when I'm on campus, if I have a chance just to hang out in the hallway at assembly and observe students sort of from a distance who aren't necessarily aware they're being observed, you will see in schools, students enforce their own codes of conduct. And high school kids will say to somebody else, you know, don't do that. That's not cool. Or we don't do that here. Or that's not funny. 
as a way uh, of taking responsibility at the student level, uh, relieving adults so that they, they are themselves helping to perpetuate the culture of the school. And that's a sign to me of an incredibly healthy school. So schools that, that and, and they don't need to be monolithic, who can develop their own cultures, I think, will be the way in which they often will differentiate themselves. That was beautifully said, John. And I, I love the view of flowers and uh, and thinking about this world where, you know, no matter what happens to you in terms of your circumstance, because we know at birth, you know, we pretty much are at the same starting place, but our circumstances in life take us on different paths, that that will no longer be true. I mean, obviously, that's the ideal for any society. But I think, you know, to reflect on Tim's question about strategy, I, you know, I take it certainly back to purpose. But I, but I also think about uh, someone who I, I think got it right a very long time ago, and that's Henry Mintzberg, who was then a professor at McGill, who wrote a groundbreaking piece about why strategic planning does not really service that well, because often it has us looking back as opposed to forward. And he made the comment that when you think about strategy, it should be a not too well articulated vision of the future, because obviously we don't know what's going to happen as these last two years have shown us. But, you know, if we are clear, I think, on that purpose, which is really to serve students well, and as you said, John, to help them find that purpose and uh, to help them create pathways to that, you know, we will then be changing the nature of our society. So there's I think just such a huge opportunity there, you know, a tall order. But I think, you know, when you are clear about what you do, it makes it also easier to then start to look at what are both the headwinds and the tailwinds for you. That is, what are the obstacles in the path of you achieving that? And what are those tailwinds that can help you out? But having that clarity first about purpose, I think, is going to be absolutely essential for schools. But as Mintzberg warned us, you know, let's not have it too well planned out so that we can continue to flex and navigate as our schools have, have done so well through the pandemic. The other thing that I would love to say about the future, uh, you know, this has been a really hard two years. And, you know, there's been a lot of grief and loss, and I would never want to downplay that. But within the school community, I think a silver lining has been collaboration. We can't do this alone. And schools collaborated better than I have ever observed in my close to 25 years at NAIS and even longer working with the community. So I also hope that we use that spirit of collaboration as part of our strategy moving forward. Yeah, thank you, Donna. And, and you know, it, that whole notion of that future focus, that moving forward is a big part of what we do in this podcast or on this podcast. And it's how I want to ask you each to sort of end our time together today is to think about, you know, something I've been thinking about and we've been asking all of our guests this season is around this idea of what are your hopes for the future of our schools? You know, if we were to come back in five or 10 years, what would you hope to see in independent schools thriving and moving forward? And what kinds of things can schools begin thinking about 
as they're setting their own strategy, their own view of where their future's headed? I think, you know, one for me is something you mentioned earlier, Tim, is I think, you know, the pandemic has put a spotlight on mental health. And I think that mental health is a continuum like physical health. And, you know, I think for all students and children, and I'll go back to John Powell, it's situational. But I think, you know, we are now a lot clearer as a society about the many challenges that kids face. And when you look at mental health, it starts in childhood. One out of every six children has some sort of issue with mental health. And we know that the pandemic has exacerbated that and probably put many more children along that continuum. So, you know, I I think as we also know through brain research, the connections between mental health and physical health and academic outcomes, you know, that we create schools where mental and physical health are really at the center of what we do, that we understand where children and adults are situated, and we understand very specifically what each one of them needs to be whole mentally, to be whole physically. Because I think once we are able to do that, you know, we're taking those rocks out of the way for students and adults to achieve anything. But we have the means now to do that. I think we have more of the understanding to do that. No easy task to put this all together. I don't minimize that. But I do think it is the challenge for schools to face. And I believe our schools can do this. You know, I I recently wrote my blog for next month, and I was thinking back on what we really have to do, how we need to move forward. And quoting someone else, we need to accept the past for what it is, for all of its glory, but we need to fight for the future. So I think that that's how I'm going to close, because I think independent schools have a glorious future to fight for, and I think they can make a difference in our society. So I think we have to accept and put behind us where we've been and to really concentrate on fighting for a future that will really ensure that We have that field of flowers that uh, John spoke about. (laughs) (laughs) The field of flowers. I love the, I love the, also also Donna, your, your statement where every child is whole. And I just think that's a, wow, what a, what a great t-shirt. John, what are your thoughts? (laughs) Uh, Well, first, just going back to something Donna had said in the the earlier portion that that I just want to echo. I, I do think the silver line, one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been, the degree of, of collaboration among school leaders and, and, and those in, in different schools who, as a result of their need to, to share wisdom and, and pathways forward, came to collaborate. And that's one of my dreams for the independent school world is that, that we share the same dreams for the children. And there isn't a competition, a sort of head-to-head competition that there might be between, let's say, Uber and Lyft, where people are trying to put each other out of business, but instead trying to share secrets, because that's Part of the, the, the beauty of a, a not-for-profit is uh, this shared sense of, of both purpose and, and mission. I guess, Tim, I'll answer the, the part of your question that said, what might I hope for if I had the, the opportunities to, to, to think uh, 20 years from now and, and come back and visit and what may ha- have changed? I'll build on a couple of things that, that Donna said. I hope we continue to, to mine the world of neuroscience 
which is one of the more significant things that, that's happened over the course of my lifetime. We, we know an awful lot more about how the human brain works and how we learn. And that has, has begun to make its way into the world of education. But there's a lot more that I think could be done in benefiting from that improved understanding. I would like to see a world of education going back again to something Donna had mentioned that enjoys a much higher degree of public trust than, than it does at present. It is true that the schools actually have a, a higher degree of public trust than a lot of other societal organizations. But there is this phenomena that most of us who, who are in this world understand is, is that uh, there can be a condemnation of education broadly, but my child's school is always above average. This is a like Wobegon phenomena. But I think generally speaking, I would like the battles that are pitched battles that are being fought right now are to the detriment uh, of all. I, I hinted at some of the other things that matter to me. I would like to, to see schools really much more profoundly differentiated I'm quite interested in trying to, to follow what's happening in Finland as, as they move to a phenomenon-based curriculum. I think that there's, there are opportunities for schools that are interested to do the same thing with an epistemological approach. I mean, why don't we organize our curriculum along the lines of how do we know what we know from the earliest age? And it would, would work. On much more practical levels in this world that we share of independent schools, I'm, I'm hoping that what's been a steadily declining term of leadership for school heads reverses. Uh, I, I don't think independent schools are well served when uh, the, the, the heads of school begin to approach urban superintendency in terms of length of tenure. This is just not a, a healthy trend. I, I'd love to see us continue to, to wrestle with fundamental questions that have begun over the course of the last half century to, to be better understood. Questions about what is intelligence? And we have this word that reifies a concept, but, but we don't really have a good operationalized definition and we need to continue to keep broad ways of understanding that. Equally so, this notion of meritocracy. I mean, we have so much of our, our society built on this idea that, that admission to particularly selective uh, schools or college universities somehow is a, a reflection of the individual merit. But Donna mentioned it earlier. There's a lot of privilege that comes with that, as Warren Buffett has it, uh, ovarian lottery that you, you win or don't win. I mean, in terms of, of maybe there, there, there are certain fundamental aspects that, that are uniform, but there's an awful lot that continues to perpetuate the good fortune of some and the disadvantage of, of others. And that's, I hope to see progress made on that front. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Donna. You know, when we started off this conversation, I said to myself, this is, this is not going to be a hard uh, 45 minutes or hour to fill with the three of us getting together to think together. I want to thank you both so much for bringing your thoughts, your deep experience, and most importantly, your love for our schools to Newview EDU. It's been a wonderful conversation, and you never know. We'll get back together in about 20 years, John. And we'll see how many of those things have come true. I will look forward to that. I look forward to it as well. All the best. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, John. Thanks, Tim. What a fascinating conversation. I was struck by the positivity shown by Donna and John. While there's no question that the past two years have been trying on so many levels and the challenges we face are real, there's also been silver linings. 
Our schools are collaborating with each other like never before. We have a clear sense of the importance of putting well-being, our culture, and the capacity to really listen to each other at the center of school. I also loved the conversation about mission, purpose, and strategy. I thought it was incredibly helpful the way Donna and John talked about the unique moment we're in as we head into the summer and hopefully out of the pandemic. We have an opportunity for our schools to step back, to think about our purpose, to consider deeply maybe our why more than our what. Be sure to join us next week when Lisa K. Solomon will come back to the conversation as we talk with Michelle King, a teacher, a learning instigator, a love activist, and a beloved community architect. Trust me, you do not want to miss this conversation. See you next time on New View EDU.